What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You are locked into the Citizen Truth podcast. Today is a special day because we are joined by the legendary historian, Dr. Gerald Horn. He's penned over 30 books, but today we're going to talk about his book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Uh, Dr. Horn, you talk a lot about sectarian conflict in Europe and Northern Africa throughout the 16th century. So for our listeners, who were the, the major powers uh, in that century? Well, first of all, they're the so-called Catholic powers led by the man who terms himself his Catholic majesty, speaking of the leader of what today we, we would call Spain. And then there are the Muslim forces which are in a sense led by the Ottoman Turks, today's Turkey, in other words, eventually uh, with Martin Luther arising circa 1517, you have the split in the Christian forces with the rise of the Protestant faith. And that leads to a cycle of religious wars between Protestants and Catholics. And interestingly enough, one of the ways that Protestant London prevails is that basically it cuts a deal with Muslims against its Catholic, or I should say fellow Christian uh, peer, so to speak. And that proves to be the winning ticket. You talk about the year uh, 1492 uh, as being significant for the, the Settler Colonial Project in North America. Uh, just tell the people what happened in, in 1492 in the uh, Americas. Well, I'm sure your listeners recall from elementary school history that 1492 <laughs> yeah. is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, sponsored by the monarchs and what today we would call Spain. But 1492 was also the year where you see an accelerating expulsion of the Jewish community from the Iberian Peninsula. And this has manifold consequences, particularly when many of these folks who we refer to as Sephardim uh, migrate into the ranks of the Ottoman Turks, migrate ultimately into Protestant London, Protestant Holland, and their so-called diaspora networks prove quite useful for these Protestant and Muslim powers, it's, it's, it's really a case of self-harm on the part of his Catholic majesty on the Iberian Peninsula. And 1492 is also when you begin to see the accelerating demise of Muslim rule on the Iber Iberian Peninsula. Keep in mind that the Muslims had ruled that part of Europe uh, for centuries. Uh, but finally, uh, in 1492, uh, their rule was diminishing. And that too has significant consequence because ultimately, once again, in a case of self-harm, uh, his Catholic majesty persecutes the remaining Muslims on the Iberian Peninsula, which makes them susceptible to the blandishments of Ottoman Turkey. Uh, ultimately, he expels them and many of them migrate right across the Mediterranean to North Africa, uh, to Morocco, today's Tunisia, Algeria, uh, where they are still within striking range of the Iberian Peninsula. So I think 
one of the reasons why we're sitting here uh, speaking English as opposed to Spanish is because of the his Catholic majesty repeatedly, as they say in the soccer field, uh, scoring an own goal. <laughs> that is to say, rather than scoring against the opposition, uh, he was scoring in favor of the opposition. So um, following Columbus, I guess in the early 1500s, that's when the Spanish start bringing African slaves to the Caribbean. Am I right? Um, yeah, generally speaking. And, yeah. and also, uh, keep it, this, is, this is taking place in the wake of monumental, breathtaking genocide against the indigenous population, uh, who the Spanish wanted to turn into forced laborers. And uh, when they rebelled, they basically liquidated them. And then they began bringing in enslaved Africans, uh, particularly from West Africa. Uh, but part of the problem with the uh, Iberian project is that on the one hand, they were bringing in these enslaved Africans. On the other hand, they were allowing Africans who profess Catholicism to become conquistadors, to, in a sense, have a non-slave position and relying upon their religious uh, interests, their class interests, to keep them from allying with the enslaved Africans. And uh, I'm not so sure if that was a stable way to proceed, but in any case, the people whose language we're now speaking, uh, I may be getting ahead of your list of questions, but allow me to proceed. No worries. Uh, speaking of the English, they were the scrappy underdogs. Um, there were far fewer Protestants, to put it mildly, uh, than Catholics, particularly in the beginning. And so in an improvisational maneuver, they initially began to try to co-op those in the British Isles themselves, particularly Irish Catholics, Scottish Catholics, etc., cetera, uh, inviting them to the colonial banquet uh, at London's behest. And then, of course, those not willing to go along could be liquidated and expropriated. So that was the choice, either join the colonial banquet or be expropriated or liquidated. And then from there, uh, they move in a pan-European fashion. Uh, that is to say, uh, moving towards recruiting those who had been warring on the shores of Europe not only English versus Irish and English versus Scots and English versus Welsh, the British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Serb versus Croat, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian. Uh, I could go on because the list is virtually endless in terms of European ethnic groups. And with a maneuver that would make Madison Avenue blush as they crossed the Atlantic, in a spectacular display of what could be called identity politics, they're rebranded as white, unquote. And this helps to smooth over whatever ethnic tensions uh, they might have. It helps to smooth over uh, whatever class tensions they may have as well. Because one of the points that I try to make in this book that I think is relevant to today is that this project that emerges in, in North America 
the land where we are now residing was, was a settler colonial project and it was a settler colonial project that was based on class collaboration. Uh, that is to say, when these Europeans were crossing the Atlantic, they weren't crossing with the idea that, hmm, as soon as I land, I'm gonna ally with the Native Americans against the people I crossed on the boat with. As soon as I land, I'm gonna ally with the Africans against their, I mean, it, ultimately some might have done that, but that was, but they were the minority and that certainly wasn't the idea coming over. They were coming over to try to get rich, to try to get wealthy, to try to score what eventually comes to be called the American dream. Uh, that is to they say- They came from the lower, lower classes in Europe. Oftentimes they did. Yeah. And um, oftentimes, of course, um, as I point out in the book, you have uh, people forced off the land in uh, England. And after they're forced off the land, they become surplus. So it makes sense to take your chances in the wilds of North America, as opposed to being uh, homeless <laughs> in England, or they're demobilized soldiers uh, with fungible skills in terms of how to use weapons and how to use knives, etc. And uh, they, I'm sure many of them thought that that fungible skill would go a long way in North America, where oftentimes people didn't have weapons, as opposed to Europe, which was a washing weapons. So I introduced this concept of class collaboration because I think it sheds light on the years in the United States between 2016 and 2020, when a faux billionaire, whose name will not pass my lips, was elected to the highest office of the land. In fact, got 75 million votes in November, 2020. And in fact, maybe making a comeback in 2024. Uh, and to give you another idea of how class collaboration works, because of course, everybody voting for this guy was not a billionaire or a millionaire. Uh, many of these are working class people. But in a certain sense, they were, they were sort of recreating the origins of this project. And you also saw this, if I can introduce another contemporary note, with the ProPublica story that suggested that all these billionaires were partly paying anything in, in terms of taxes. Now, when that doesn't happen, you, you see that working class people, they're still paying double digits in taxes. So you would think that these folks would be up in arms, but it hasn't happened so far. And one of the reasons might be the attraction of the so-called American dream, because a lot of these people feel that, hey, I'm gonna be a billionaire one day myself. <laughs> so I don't wanna pay taxes when I'm gonna be there. So I can uh, wallow in the filthy lucre. So why should I be upset that Jeff Bezos doesn't pay taxes? I mean, that's the sort of thinking, I'm afraid to say that we're saddled with. Yeah, I've heard people say, uh, most Americans think they're temporarily uh, embarrassed billionaires. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and temporary obviously has a lot of elasticity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit to earlier in the, the 16th century. I feel like a lot of people don't talk about the fact that uh, Spain had established a colony in, in Florida. Um, yes. When and, and why did they uh, establish that, that colony there? 
Well, I'm glad you asked that question because it raises a, a number of issues. One of the things I try to do in this book is reframe the narrative of the roots of the United States. It's usually told through Virginia and Massachusetts in the uh, 1600s, when actually settler colonialism begins in what is now St. Augustine, Florida in 1565, actually September 1565. And, you know, I think people sort of know that, but I think that they're so taken with the Anglo-centric narrative about Virginia and Massachusetts that they push St. Augustine, Florida out of their head. And one of the reasons why that settlement was established there after a number of failed attempts, including by the man I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of, Ponce de Leon, who supposedly was searching for the fountain of youth, who found its opposite when angry indigenous folk uh, basically wounded him mortally. But it was established because the cash cows of the nation Spanish Empire, or what we would call Spain, uh, or Aragon and Castile, if you want to be technical. Um, the, the cash cows were Peru, New Spain, Mexico, and Cuba. And so what happens is that ships uh, of his Catholic majesty, groaning with wealth, would be sailing across the Atlantic to what we would call Spain. And oftentimes they would stop by Cuba on the way. But lurking nearby were English pirates. Sir Francis Drake, for example, who is now heralded in this country. I mean, there's a, there are all sorts of uh, hotels named after him. And of course, you know, the hip hop artist Drake, I take it. <laughs> as his name, <laughs> and, uh, and of course, the, the French, uh, French Catholics and French Protestants as well. And what's interesting about the French Protestants is that, and it's important to underscore this, because the model of development that we have come to associate with settler colonialism is the winning English model, uh, mm -hmm. which involves this pan-Europeanism, whiteness, it involves uh, liquidation of the Native Americans, degradation of the Africans, Africans are enslaved, there's an equivalence between being enslaved and being African, after an attempt by the English to enslave the indigenous as well, as their Spanish comrades did. But as noted, the Spanish model involved certain Africans who could be conquistadors if they said they were Catholic, the French Protestants, they went a step further. I mean, they, they made quite a fortune by sailing into Spanish settlements and making deals with the enslaved and then freeing them all mm -hmm. in return for them joining in attacks on the Spanish. But that is not the model that won out. The model that won out features the language of the people we're now, the language we're now speaking, the English. So, to speak. so were, the, were the French not as interested in, in getting the land? Well, if you look at Canada, for example, and as you know, uh, Quebec 
uh, still has a French-speaking majority, and it's still a burning issue in Canada, the relationship between the English speakers and the French speakers, they were oftentimes interested in the fur trade uh, in the early stages of settler colonialism and were willing, and also oftentimes they would merge with the indigenous, that, that leads to a population in French we call the Métis, M-E-T-I-S. And uh, <laughs> as you know, the English, uh, they tried to build a Berlin Wall between themselves and the Africans in terms of sexual relations, at least on the formal level. Of course, we know what happened informally. And to a certain extent, they did the same thing with regard to the indigenous population. That is to say, formal barriers, but informally getting it on. And whereas the French had a different sort of model, it was much more upfront. Even the French Catholics had a different model, which, which in a sense distinguishes them from the Spanish Catholics. So uh, it's important to point out these distinctions because I think oftentimes the way history is taught, you would think it was inevitable that the English and the London Protestants would triumph. And it was far from in inevitable and it could have gone in another direction. Yeah, so why did that colony in Florida, why was that not successful? Well, <laughs> for one, the indigenous, it's interesting when you look at indigenous history, uh, there are certain indigenous groups that are better at warfare than others. You could say that about the indigenous of Florida. You could say that about the indigenous of Texas, where I'm now sitting with the Comanches. And just to, to pan out for a second, it's interesting to look down under and compare the indigenous of New Zealand with the indigenous of Australia. The indigenous of New Zealand, uh, first of all, they had less land to defend than continental size Australia, but also they were better fighters. They mastered trench warfare. And that's one of the reasons why there are more of them proportionately in New Zealand, uh, why New Zealand is officially bilingual. I never forget when I went to um, New Zealand archives for another project I was working on. And I noticed that on the archives building, it's in English and then it's in the Maori language. And that's the case throughout New Zealand. And, 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 and without being simplistic, I think it's because they were better fighters and so they could defend themselves and avoid being liquidated. And certainly that was the case in Florida. I'm sure you know the story of um, Florida is a very interesting case. Where are you speaking from? Miami. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, let me go into detail about Florida. Then. Because the United States only takes over Florida about 200 years ago, as you probably know. And between 1565 and about 1820, uh, you have all of these wars in, in Florida. Uh, in fact, uh, oftentimes it's said today that the war in Afghanistan is the longest war the U.S. has ever been involved in. Actually, it's the wars in Florida between about 1820 and 1855 with the people we call the Seminoles uh, who merged with the Africans. And in fact, in some cases were led by Africans and uh, basically fought the US to a standstill. And certainly they, they fought the Spanish uh, from 1565 onward. And so, as I say in the book, in 1607, 
<laughs> when the English are sailing to what they call Virginia, named after the Virgin Queen, so-called Queen Elizabeth. The Spanish, from their perch in St. Augustine, they wanted to do something about it. But they were so tied down fighting the indigenous and the Africans, they could not sail north. And so the English got their foothold. And as they say in the United States, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to take it toward the end of the, the 16th century. Um, you talk about the defeat of the, the Songhai Empire. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how does the, that defeat uh, make West Africa more vulnerable to enslavement? Yes, uh, 1591. Um, that's a turning point. That's one of the reasons why this African you're speaking to is sitting in North America speaking English. <laughs> what happens is that the wily Londoners make an alliance with predominantly Muslim Morocco. And the Moroccans attack southward against the Songhai Empire, which was a important political entity, also Muslim. As a matter of fact, uh, it may be apocryphal, but there is this line that apparently comes from the, the conflict where the, the uh, Africans were in the process of being vanquished. They'd say to the Moroccans, we are Muslims too. Why are you killing us? <laughs> but of course, uh, they did not apparently realize that a, a page in history was turning uh, where intense religiosity was yielding uh, to the intoxicating scent of profit. And the defeat of the Songhai Empire, a major political force there to four, uh, resonates as far south as today's Nigeria, resonates as far west as today's Senegal and today's Ivory Coast. It softens up that part of West Africa for the onrushing African slave trade. It really destabilizes that part of West Africa and making that part of West Africa more vulnerable uh, to enslavement. And interestingly enough, uh, to fast forward, Morocco claims, and I underline claims, that it was the first nation to recognize the newly independent United States of America in the 1770s. France, of course, claims that it's the United States' oldest ally, of course. And interestingly enough, as we speak, there are military maneuvers taking place between the Moroccan military and the US military. Um, the so-called AFRICOM of the United States and the Moroccan military. Morocco uh, has been rocked recently by demonstrations because, of course, they were part of the signatories of the so-called Abraham Accords, the 45th US president, the so-called peace with Israel, sidelining the Palestinians, et cetera. Well, that did not go down very well uh, amongst many of the people in Morocco. So stay tuned. Uh, you might see a upsurge of dissent and conflict in Morocco, North Africa, sooner rather than later. Um, so I just have one more question, Dr. Horn, if you have time for it. Um, white supremacy that our nation was built on, you know, still exists today in various parts of 
our society, you know, although it's changed forms over the years, do you think the very existence of the United States uh, requires white supremacy? In, in other words, you know, will it continue to just evolve into different forms? Well, you know, clearly it has evolved. I mean, 150 years ago, a person like myself would have been enslaved. Um, so obviously it's evolving. It's, it's interesting. I think that in some ways it's tracking the Spanish project where you had conquistadors and slaves. So right now you have black millionaires, even a few black billionaires and a disproportionate number of homeless, for example, who are black. So that, that's the, the sort of model that, that's taken hold uh, in the United States of America. And I guess the import of your question is, can it evolve past that? I think so, um, but it's not going to be easy. <laughs> that's, for, that's for sure. It's not going to be easy as, as we see right now. As a matter of fact, I have to confess, as I look into my crystal ball, I'm counseling others and counseling myself to develop a plan B for the United States, that is to say, to think about a place of exile, because the signs are not very good right now in the United States. And we know that as this right wing becomes ever more strengthened, black people are gonna be an, an initial and early victim. Um, and those of us who want to survive might wanna think of a place of exile, which is not to say giving up the struggle, uh, but it is saying that any general knows that you not only have to have a plan for advance, you have to have a plan for an orderly retreat as well. Dr. Horn, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Everyone go pick up the book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Thank you so much. Hope to talk to you again. Thank you for inviting me. Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.